Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Trade negotiators from the U.S. and Mexico have come to terms over a number of issues. The long-running talks were part of the Trump administration's renegotiation of NAFTA, which of course includes Canada. At a press conference, President Trump attempted to explain what to call the deal and who's in it. We could have a separate deal or we could put it into this deal. I like to call this deal the United States-Mexico Trade Agreement. I think it's an elegant name. I think NAFTA has a lot of bad connotations for the United States because it was a ripoff. It was a deal that was a horrible deal for our country. And uh, I think it's got a lot of bad connotations to a lot of people. And so we will uh, probably, uh, you and I will agree to uh, the name. Uh, We will see whether or not uh, we decide to put up a candidate or just do a separate deal with Canada if they want to make the deal. The simplest deal is more or less already made. All right. With me to help understand what went down yesterday with President Trump and the trade deal with uh, Mexico is Phil Levy, senior fellow with on the global economy with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Thanks for joining us, Phil. You've got um, a big job ahead of you explaining what happened yesterday. Hi, Jerome. It's good to be with you. Uh, President Trump there, as I understand it, uh, went to Congress and said, I am going to renegotiate the NAFTA deal and moved forward uh, from that point. And he was renegotiating the NAFTA deal. Can he come in and just say, well, now it's the U.S.-Mexico trade agreement and go back to Congress and with this thing and, and that everything's okay? There's some argument about this, but probably not. Um, As much as it looks like the president is able to sort of engage in free-form negotiations, we have a law called Trade Promotion Authority uh, that was passed in 2015 and just renewed uh, that that has certain requirements. And so you've had a number of members of Congress say that a U.S.-Mexico bilateral is not the same thing as an after renegotiation, and therefore um, they don't have the right to do this. Does that give Canada uh, kind of say uh, some clout here in the negotiations? You've got this thing. We've got to agree to it. Uh, you've got to come to us now. Well, so the the question is whether Canada would want to call the administration's bluff on this. And I should note that whenever you're dealing with Congress on these things, it, it's hard to sort of have ironclad certainty because – at some point, Congress sets its own rules, and a future Congress, which is what this would be, we're probably talking about the Congress that's elected in our November midterms, can do what it likes. So I'm not, I don't know how much confidence Canada would want to put in that sort of legal interpretation. Uh, well, well, run down the scenarios here for us. Um, President Trump has this deal with Mexico, and uh, he's going to present it um, by itself to Congress in November with kind of in a in a crapshoot manner without uh, without Canada? 
Well, the first critical juncture comes this week, that there's a ticking clock or a couple of ticking clocks that are going on, that you've got Mexico, which just held elections, and on December 1st, um, the Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is going to replace Enrique Peña Nieto as president. So that's one deadline that's sitting out there. And this legislation that I talked about said, before you sign any trade agreements, you need to give the Congress 90 days notice. That's why the end of this week has become focal, that everybody's looking at this, because if you want to get this signed by President Peña Nieto of Mexico, you pretty much need to notify Congress by this weekend. Um, The question then is, what will they be notifying? Will this be just a bilateral with Mexico, or will this involve Canada as well? It was a bilateral with Mexico that was announced yesterday, and then they basically told Canada, you've got several days. If we can work it all out, this will be, um, this will be a NAFTA deal. So there's a bit of brinksmanship going on. That makes a big difference whether you've got the three countries or just the two. So the Trump administration is really trying to stick it to Canada on uh, the negotiating points this week. Um, what has Canada responded Well, so it wasn't clear that they were going to actually have a deal between the U.S. and Mexico. They were supposed to originally announce it last Thursday. It didn't happen. It dragged down through the weekend. Canada has said they were ready to talk um, whenever, but there was nothing to talk about because the U.S. had essentially excluded them from the talks, uh, saying that they were only discussing bilateral issues. It turns out that wasn't quite true. Um, But Canada said, we will come and we will have negotiations and we'll do whatever's best for Canada. Um, so that kind of uh, leaves leaves a lot of room for maneuver. Um, but my understanding is that Canada's sort of foreign minister, trade minister, Christian Freeland, will be coming to Washington, and they've got a, a NAFTA negotiator, and they will engage. They don't have a lot of time. You're talking about three days to resolve something that negotiations that have stretched on for a year now. Uh, The Trump administration seems really stuck on a couple of key issues for Canada. Dairy, um, auto tariffs are being thrown out there. How does this all sound to – doesn't sound like Canada is going to get a better deal out of this. Well, I don't think the U.S. gets a better deal out of this. Um, But I think what happened with Canada, that's right. One of the things the president has fixated on has been uh, the dairy protection regime. And it's true that Canada has a protectionist dairy regime, just as the U.S. is protectionist on sugar and on shipping with things like the Jones Act. So pretty much every country has some sensitive area like that that it reserves. So if the president is going to hold out for complete dairy liberalization by Canada, this is going to be a very, very difficult negotiation. I think the real question is, if Canada says no, what happens? Um, and that's where there's a lot of uncertainty, and they may be worried about that op- that possibility. Now, Canada has elections coming up itself not too long from now, and they want to position themselves uh, as, I don't know, not capitulating to President Trump, I would imagine, would be the most popular thing to do. That's right. So I think you know, we already saw some conflict between President Trump and Prime Minister Trudeau in the, at the G7 meetings that, that Canada hosted earlier, where the President, President Trump said he was in a fit of pique, that he was going to sort of pull out of a communique that everyone had agreed upon because he was mad at some comments that Prime Minister Trudeau had made. And that seems to have uh, significantly worsened relations between uh, the U.S. and our neighbor. I think your, your point is, is very well taken, which is, the 
this sort of brinksmanship and bluster make it very hard for Canada to, to stand down on this if, if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau wants to be politically viable at home. All right. And then, then the, the Canadians are also factoring in how much of a – how much – the Congress is going to the U.S. Congress would would want to pass these deals, which isn't exactly clear. It's not clear. So normally, what you have is that U.S. trade representatives are absolutely fixated on making sure that they have enough congressional support to have Congress pass whatever they do. Because as much as it looks like it's the White House that passes trade deals, it's in the end the Congress under our Constitution. Ambassador Lighthizer, has, the current U.S. Trade Representative, has not really operated this way. He's ignored a lot of fairly blunt warning signals coming from sort of top trade leaders in both the House and the Senate on, on some key points. It, that may be under the theory that they can say what they like, but when it comes right down to it, they'll have no choice but to support. That remains to be seen. The other real complicating factor here is the White House missed the deadline to get it in front of the current U.S. Congress, which was probably sometime back in May. That's because not only does the the governing law, the TPA, set out these notification requirements, it also specifies a bunch of things that have to be done before Congress can vote. The most notable of those is the U.S. International Trade Commission has to conduct a study saying, what will this do to the U.S. economy? And they have, I think, 105 days to do that after they see text of an agreement. So the bottom line on that, you're not going to get a vote in the current Congress. It's the next Congress. And we don't even know who's going to be running the next Congress. I'm talking with Phil Levy, Senior Fellow on the Global Economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And we're talking about the deal made by negotiators between the U.S. and Mexico and what it means for Canada and the U.S. And in a few minutes, we're going to be considering what happens next after U.N. investigators say that Burma's generals should be tried for genocide. That's in a few minutes. So essentially what's happening here is – um. President Trump is daring the future Congress to um, pass or or not pass this bill. And uh, for Democrats in the future Congress, this bill actually addresses some things that they objected to in NAFTA. It looks kind of Democrat-friendly in there. I think there have been serious efforts along those lines made by our negotiators uh, that they've put in some uh, some requirements for higher wages in the auto sector, which is much closer to a democratic issue. They've put some restrictions on what you can do with investor state dispute settlement. Those are protections that um, that U.S. investors look to when they're investing abroad. That has also been a Democratic complaint in the past. So they've definitely made some moves in that direction. The real question will be, are those sufficient to address very long-standing Democrat concerns about NAFTA? Um, remember, in the end, you still have something that looks pretty much like a free trade agreement with Mexico. It's, it's a little less free than the old NAFTA, but it's not clear that this actually addresses all of their concerns. And, of course, there's the political question of whether they will want to be handing a win to President Trump. And they have to weigh that factor, that political factor, against these, well, I guess they would call them modest changes in the the deal. I mean, even something like the investor state dispute settlement mechanism, which 
Um, people who object to it think that it's uh, an, it goes beyond uh, domestic law and puts uh, an international tribunal in charge of uh, what should be a domestic issue. Uh, it has a loophole in it as big, big as a big as a truck. Well, it's. I mean, they didn't get rid of this state dispute settlement, at least for what we've seen. So it, it's still there for certain key industries. This was, for example, uh, this is where they're trying to thread a very. Um, you know, sort of delicate little gap, um, because you have Democrats objecting in principle, you have the U.S. energy industry looking at a New Mexican administration that's much more skeptical about U.S. investment, and they're valuing uh, the protections that ISDS offered. So this is the standard problem of trade policy and trade politics, which is you may please one side, but you might lose at least as many votes on the other side. All right. And um, the Cato Institute, they're, they're free traders, and, and they don't like uh, the looks of the what happened with the investor dispute settlement. Yeah, at least uh, one scholar there commented that this seems to be a compromise that will leave everybody unhappy. We'll see whether that's actually the case. Um, but it, it is true that this is one of the things about modern trade agreements is, as much as the president just talks about tariffs, there's much more than tariffs there. There's things such as investment protections and you get much more disagreement on those than you do on tariffs. Well, um, we're back to the political questions. And the um, the Democrats uh, really have to weigh their options on this thing when it comes flying at them uh, after the elections. There's There's going to be a big choice to make there. That's right. And one of the things that's going to go into that choice is they're going to have to look at this deal and say, is this deal worth it? And part of the answer is going to be compared to what? And one of the really striking things in that news conference from which you, or the, the, the uh, shot from the Oval Office from which you played a clip, was that the president made it clear that, that he does not anticipate the Congress choosing between the status quo and his new deal. What he was saying was that he can actually make things a lot worse between now and then by doing things like slapping 25% tariffs on auto imports and potentially ending the current NAFTA. So the choice might be between that kind of sort of economic carnage and the New Deal. Um, so it might then look good in comparison. It would also beg the question of whether Democrats would want to bail the president out from those actions. Um, and Canada is is uh, on the ropes here too. So it'll be uh, interesting to see what Canada does here by the end of the week. Absolutely. We should know within a few days um, at least which, which which one of the sort of curious paths we're going to go down. So anybody who thought yesterday's announcement solved everything was was wrong. Absolutely. No, it was, at best, it was a step in the right direction. Um, I think you can actually make the argument that it was not a step in the right direction, that there's some of these things where uh, the U.S. and Mexico agreed to some issues where Canada has traditionally disagreed, and they were not bilateral matters, they were things that affected all three. It may be hard to back away from those and reach a compromise by the end of this week. Phil Levy is Senior Fellow on the Global Economy with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Thanks for joining us and making sense of what happened between the trade negotiations between the U.S. and Mexico. My pleasure. Thank you.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about what happens next now that U.N. investigators have called for the prosecutions of genocide for Burmese military generals. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Myanmar has rejected new findings by a U.N. investigation which concludes the Burmese military high command ordered the genocide of Muslim Rohingyas. Nearly a million Rohingyas fled to Bangladesh and now live in camps. Half the refugees are children and their future looks dire. The BBC's Myanmar correspondent Nick Beek has this has been visiting the camps. The voice of young survivors. In a wooden hut perched on a hillside, Burmese lessons have just begun for the children who escaped with their lives, but little else. Two dozen Rohingya boys and girls happily learning the language of a country they were forced to flee. A country accused of trying to wipe out their people. The beaming faces may give the impression they're mercifully ignorant of the crimes the Burmese army are said to have committed last year. But when the singing stops, the smiles disappear, because the memories are still there. When I wake up every morning, I start crying. Then I wipe my tears away, and I get ready to go to school. 11-year-old Omar sits legs crossed on a mat, and gently leans forward to talk to us. His classmates around him keep on drawing. Tell us about your parents. My parents loved me so much. They gave me clothes and money, whatever I needed. They looked after me very well. If I felt sick, they took me to the doctor so I could be given medicine so I get better. What happened to your mum and dad? Early in the morning, we had to run from the house. But then they shot my parents dead. I don't know where they're buried. A teacher later explains Omar's three brothers and two sisters were also murdered. How are you? How are you? How are you is the phrase everyone has learned here. But it's how they are which is the most important question. UNICEF, the United Nations Agency for Children, says tens of thousands of orphans cross the border from Myanmar into Bangladesh. I never thought that they are the children from other country. I thought it's my children. So it's my responsibility to protect them. Rumour has been helping to run UNICEF projects. She says a year on from the children arriving, specific dangers have emerged. Still the children are in a traumatised situation, so they need the support. They are facing some sort of sexual exploitation, but no one is talking about these issues. 
because we are thinking this is the shame for the family and the children. And aid agencies are increasingly concerned that traffickers will exploit this sprawling place if the international community looks away. Well, if you clamber up to one of the many vantage points here, you get a sense of the astonishing size of the camps. And all across this landscape, among the maze of makeshift shelters, you see children running around in what is the most desperate of giant playgrounds. It's a confined and chaotic city of nearly a million refugees that's been thrown together here. And the concern a year on is that the extraordinary becomes the ordinary, that somehow the world moves on and accepts the fate of the Rohingya people. And that was the BBC's Myanmar correspondent Nick Beek at the Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh. Yesterday at the United Nations, investigators for the top UN human rights body made an announcement about what's happened to the Rohingya. The mission has concluded that criminal investigation and prosecution is warranted, focusing on the top Tatmadaw generals in relation to the three categories of crimes under international law, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. That's U.N. investigators now calling for prosecutions of genocide against the Burmese military. Last week, we spoke with Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid, founder of Burma Task Force USA, and the group is drawing attention to the plight of Rohingya refugees who now live in the camps in Bangladesh we were just hearing about. And we talked with him before the rally that happened in Chicago and various North American cities all over the weekend. And thanks for joining us again, Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid. Hey, how are you? Not bad. Um, what do you think about the announcement from UN investigators? Um, do you think that is significant? A lot of people are saying it doesn't change things because the the Security Council is never going to move it on. Yes, it is important to realize it's a it's a top human rights body within the United Nations. It need to go to General Assembly or Security Council to do something about it. What I have seen, uh, Jerome, is that when the world wants to do something, they do it and they move fast. Here is a genocide which is so well documented that no other genocide has ever been. Satellite images while genocide is going on, before and after images of that area, and genocide hasn't ended. Half a million people are still starving to death inside Burma, and two and a half million are all around the world, one million being in Bangladesh. What are we doing about it? That is the question. So yet another report, yes, it is a better report, because in the past they say signs of genocide, approaching genocide, looks like genocide, Finally, they are using that it is a genocide, but they are still saying they need to be investigated and prosecuted. Should be. UN was created to avoid all of these things. Who are they asking should be tried and, uh, you know, they should just refer them to ICC? We individuals (laughs) taking advantage of a clever prosecutor in International Criminal Court, Burma Task Force, has filed uh, with the help of two British-based barristers on behalf of the victims. I mean, when I was listening to that documentary, 
I found myself uh, controlling to not tear up because I could remember those streets of those camps uh, up and down on the hill. I have spent uh, days and days with those victims. And uh, their, their images are in front of me. And one of the first things they say, when can, I get, when can we get justice? Can we go back to our home? Nobody wants to live in a miserable situation like this. They want to go back. So many people uh, have looked at this and been appalled. But a lot of people look at it, I think, and are, feel uh, like it's helpless. They're so far away. The Burmese military is implacable. Uh, the Chinese are backing them up. The Russians are backing them up. And the odds that, that something moves forward here or deters them seems rather low. Um, do, do you get the feeling that people are uh, motivated enough, that there's enough support for the Rohingya. I mean, you know, you just had this rally last weekend, and I imagine it was hard to get uh, a significant cross-section of people out there to, to really support what was uh, what's happening. You're right. I mean, Rohingya people were the one largest number, and we couldn't attract a whole lot of people from outside the Rohingya community. This is the tragedy of the situation, that we said never again, and we just <laughs> forget about it. Uh, I mean, uh, China has always been supporting. Uh, they control the economy of Burma. They have always been there. But despite that, there have been things which happened there. For example, there were full sanctions placed on, uh, on, on Myanmar. And since military controls 70% economy, they saw the pain. Actually, there is a um, last-serving Rohingya member of the parliament from Burma. He was member of the parliament until 2015. He told me what type of conversation in the parliament used to take place about that pain, and they were hurting. Every organization, including ours, all human rights organizations, 46 altogether, says don't lift those sanctions. Unfortunately, the president I worked so hard for, <laughs> President Obama, ended up lifting sanctions. It was too early. It gave a green light and military went berserk. Now they are done with Rohingya almost. They are attacking Kachin, and Kachin are 90% Baptist. Hmm. So this needs to be stopped, and the only way to stop is reaffirm our commitment. They are using it as a genocide. Now the U.S. government needs to come forward. The U.S. government has done investigation uh, uh, over a year long, spent millions of dollars of our tax money. They have 18,000 papers uh, uh, worth of investigation. They need to determine it's a genocide, and then what genocide treaty does, it asks the people who have signed that to stop it and punish those who are responsible for it. So UN is a, com a committee of the UN is saying this, whole UN need to say that. But who provides leadership to UN is an amazing thing. I mean, uh, it's uh, when when US and UK used to be human rights leaders in the world, they will take a stand, things will happen in the United Nations, despite China and Russia being present. To a certain extent, they will say this and that, but they will go along. China has China and Russia has been part of United Nations Security Council actually condemning Burma on these things. But, you know, U.S. has failed to move that. They need to do this. In the absence of U.S. and U.K. leadership in the area of human rights, Canada, France, and Germany are emerging, 
as people who care for human rights. Uh, French president is the only one Western president who has called it a genocide, not once but twice. Uh, Canada is giving a lot of money. Uh, but, but these people, Canada, Germany, and France has not realized that while the America and the Britain are busy in something in the world, if not Twitter world, uh, they need to take they need to step up and take things more responsibility towards the human rights in the world. If this thing will happen, Kachin will definitely go down. And already in the neighborhood, China and India who are supporting them, China has put four, three, some say uh, Vice President Pence said uh, in the ministerial conference, which I attended about a month ago, that there are millions of Uyghur Muslims in China who are in concentration camp. I don't know how many million. Right. And now India has taken the citizenship of four million Muslims away, calling them Bengali, want to send them to Bangladesh. I mean, if this thing is not a stop, that whole region is going to be very chaotic. So I think it's a, it's a wise leadership in the world. If there is someone out there, Jerome, other than you and I, uh, we need to take some, do something about it. I'm talking with Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid, chair of the Burma Task Force USA. We're talking about the UN and their investigators calling for the prosecution of genocide for uh, the top people in the Burmese military. And coming up in a moment, we are going to be talking about the Uyghur Muslims, a million people in re-education camps with Human Rights Watch and uh, Sophie Richardson. Um, before we let you go, I want to just suss out one more thing about the United States and its position. Um, the State Department did put some serious sanctions on the Burmese military generals who are accused of genocide. And uh, they're going to have this report come out sometime soon, I imagine. But people are saying that uh, President Trump doesn't actually talk about this issue and President Trump doesn't uh, bring it up in, in uh, settings with China or in, uh, in negotiations with people. Uh, are you looking for anything from the top guy here? Uh, top guy, uh, you know, is, is anybody's guess. Uh, but I think there are a lot of non-so-top guys who are serious about it. U.S. has given the largest number of money to take care of Rohingya refugees. That's a good sign. You, top guy hasn't said anything negative uh, in the middle of night about it. That is positive in my view. He actually told General Assembly last year that Security Council should stop whatever is going on. So I'm hopeful that we will still do something. The question is, will it be too late? And this whole focus on military, uh, you know, putting sanction on four or five people, that makes them hero. Uh, what we need to do is put sanction on economy. Uh, that's going to hurt uh, all the heroes there, and they will realize. And Suchi shouldn't be left that she doesn't control. She is the leader of the country. She is on record welcoming those 12,000 soldiers who arrived on August 10th. Her representative, a spokesperson, says these are fake rape. Her representative says people are burning their own houses. Suchi is responsible. It's a part of a public policy. Military is implementing that policy. Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid is chair of the Burma Action Burma Task Force USA. It's based here in Chicago. It is the only uh, full-time devoted to uh, the Rohingya Task Force in the United States. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Bye. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the million Muslims in re-education camps in China. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. and the United Nations estimate that as many as a million people could be in re-education camps in China's Xinjiang province. The Wall Street Journal says that a sign on one of the camps says, Sense the party's kindness, obey the party's words, follow the party's lead. We're going to talk about the re-education effort ongoing in Xinjiang province with Sophie Richardson, Human Rights Watch's China director. Thanks for joining us again, Sophie. Good to talk with you. Happy to be with you. I think the whole idea of a million people in a re-education camp is just so striking and so amazing to hear in this day and age. I mean, there's been a crackdown going on among the Uyghur population in Xinjiang for a long time. They're the Muslim population. Uh, They've been looked at as terrorists, but a million people in re-education camps, it seems a little much. Yeah, it's a pretty mind-boggling number to get your head around. And we actually came to this story through two fairly distinct routes. One was that people in the Uyghur diaspora community in the U.S. and other parts of the world were coming to us and saying, I haven't been able to reach my family members. You know, uncles, aunts, parents, siblings have all just gone off the grid and we don't know what's happened to them. Uh, And at the same time, we had been doing a lot of research on abuses of surveillance technologies, many of which China has piloted in Xinjiang. And we came across what was essentially a predictive policing database that was generating lists of people who were perceived in that region to be disloyal to the party and who were being identified to be picked up for re-education. And that was about a year ago. And the news has only gotten worse since that time. And so we'll have a report out in early September documenting abuses in these camps. We've spoken to a few people who've been in and out of them and to family members who have had loved ones go into them and not yet come back out. Uh, The Wall Street Journal did an interesting report earlier this month and really zoned in with satellite data and lots of numbers of of how many camps there are and how many camps that are growing, and it's really gotten out of hand. Yeah, well, there are no brakes to be pumped, right? The Chinese government operates with enormous impunity, particularly in this part of the country. Our hats are off to some of the the world-class journalists who've managed to put together uh, pieces of information about what's happening. And I think what what needs to happen next is for the U.S., the U.N., and others to really bring some serious pressure to bear on Beijing to shut these facilities down and account for people who've gone missing. What do you hear is happening inside these camps? Some of it, at times, it doesn't seem so bad. I mean, it doesn't seem like a prison camp, is it? I don't know. It sounds like it's less than that, but they make people eat pork against their will and things like this. 
The primary activity in the camps is forcing people to study Xi Jinping and Chinese Communist Party thought and government laws, uh, participating in flag-raising ceremonies. Uh, one of the other activities people have described to us is, you know, most Uyghurs don't speak Mandarin Chinese. And some people have described being forced to study Mandarin, again, as a way of expressing political loyalty. But we also have people describing to us torture and beatings and other kinds of ill treatment, in some cases, causing a kind of despair that led at least a few of our interviewees to describe how they had thought about trying to kill themselves, partly because they had no way of knowing how long they would be held before they might be released. Is there a pattern of how long these people go through this process? There isn't, uh, nor is it clear what exactly they need to do to get back out. One of the most memorable testimonies somebody shared with us he was describing having asked if he could contact a lawyer. And the political education center guards said to him, well, you don't need a lawyer because you're not in prison. All you have to do is study, you know, implying that once this guy demonstrated sufficient political loyalty, he might be allowed to be released. But also, you know, from our perspective, that's a pretty powerful statement about, you know, the the arbitrary nature of these camps. There's nothing in Chinese law, even under the counterterrorism laws, that allows for people to be deprived of their liberty. What does the Chinese government say about this? Because of a lot of the verbiage I've seen in the media, it seems that they're just flat out denying it. How do they react? The explanations Beijing has offered up really strain credulity. At a recent UN review about racial discrimination, Chinese authorities tried to suggest that these facilities are, in fact, vocational training centers. You know, and again, I think it raises a lot of questions. You know, what jobs are people being trained for that requires detaining quite elderly people and forcing them to engage in this kind of indoctrination? What kind of jobs are they being trained for that they have to be held for weeks or months at a time with no ability to leave, right? I mean, it's it's a ludicrous response. And I think the only way for the government to regain any credibility on this topic is to allow in the kinds of independent investigators that UN special rapporteurs play that function to allow people who don't have a political stake in the outcome of this to assess what's really going on. Well, what are the odds of something like that? It seems almost nil. It's tough. I mean, China is sufficiently politically powerful, particularly within the UN system, that this is going to be an uphill battle from an advocacy perspective. You know, China is also not a party to a number of the international mechanisms like the International Criminal Court that might allow for some kind of redress. But at the same time, you know, the world is filled with governments and powerful people who keep saying never again in the face of mass atrocities. And, you know, they're not off the hook for coming together as governments to compile all the information that they have, for example, about what's happening in Xinjiang and using that to push Beijing. There's nothing to say that governments can't be much more actively reaching out to the Uyghur diaspora to collect information from people about what's happened to their own family members. I mean, there are U.S. citizens who have family members detained, the U.S. government should be inviting those people in, getting their information, and doing what they can to push Beijing for answers. I'm talking with Sophie Richardson from Human Rights Watch, and we're discussing the number of people in re-education camps in China's Xinjiang province. It's possibly as much as a million people. I've been reading about some of the neighboring countries around China and their 
reaction to um, the crackdown on the Uyghurs. And they're often very silent and, and complicit. They are cooperating with Chinese authorities. They take people and they arrest them and send them back to China. And this is all because of economic reasons. How do you understand what happens in the neighboring community? Well, a number of the eight countries that border on Xinjiang themselves have lousy human rights records. Uh, And so it's not surprising that they participate with China in what's known as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a regional anti-terrorism body that has absolutely no human rights standards or protections whatsoever. But it's a complicated situation for a number of them, particularly because they are smaller, economically vulnerable. But they also increasingly face the problem that, again, their own citizens and those citizens' family members are at risk. For example, the Kazakhstan government recently refused to return a woman who admitted having crossed the border illegally from China into Kazakhstan. She had been employed in one of the camps. And, you know, the judge offered up a decision in choosing not to return her that was entirely consistent with international human rights law. And that was very encouraging to see. You know, essentially, the judge said, we can't send this person back. She faces a real threat of being ill-treated. And so we have to let her stay. That's our higher loyalty. Politically, that would have been a tough one for the the Kazakhstan foreign ministry to explain to its Chinese counterparts. But it also shows that some of these governments are able to stand up to China and say, we're not going to play your game and let people get hurt. How many other countries are considering more asylum for the Uyghurs that are there? (laughs) Because, I mean, I know Germany sent somebody back and they... they, By accident. (laughs) And they couldn't find them and they they were disappeared. Uh, so they st- they're going they just put a ban on sending all all Uyghurs back to China. What else is going on? Well, I think there there are a number of countries around the world that have significant Uyghur communities: Turkey, the U.S., uh, Germany, Australia, and I think those governments, as one of their responses to this crisis, need to urgently consider expediting asylum claims, you know, or finding out other ways they can assist these communities. You know, it's not entirely clear to us at this point that those governments are totally sure their own citizens haven't been detained when going back, for example, to visit family members. There's also a lot of work to be done around making sure that precisely the kinds of governments you were talking about a minute ago, not just in Central Asia, but places like Egypt, for example, don't respond to Chinese pressure to send people back. Last summer, Beijing sought to have a group of Uyghurs, some of whom were studying at Al-Azhar University in Cairo, sent back. Some of them were not quite sure what happened to them. Some of them did manage to escape the dragnet. But as Beijing puts pressure on other countries to force Uyghurs back to China, that's another important point of resistance, which is to protect those people and not condemn them to going back where they're likely to face ill treatment. I wonder if we could talk for a second about how this fits in with China's philosophy in Xinjiang. They've got a lot of surveillance going on there. They've done things in the past, arrested prominent people like Ilhan Toti, the, the economist. He was a completely peaceful economist who wrote about rights for the Uyghurs and was given a life sentence. How does all that fit together with re-education camps? Well, we make this point in, in the report we have coming up where we're looking at conditions in the political education camps, but also in Xinjiang more broadly to point out that the situation outside these camps is not a whole lot better. 
that there are pervasive restrictions on things like expressions of cultural identity, of religious affiliation. You know, one regulation that went into effect last year that got a lot of attention, rightly so, was the regional authorities telling people that there were certain names that were now deemed too Islamic and that people could no longer give their children those names. You know, I mean, wow. And these are remarkably pervasive, intrusive decisions for which, I mean, not only is there no legal basis, there are laws that protect people's rights to do these things. You know, and the level of surveillance is really off the charts. Earlier this year, we documented the forced collection of biodata, including DNA samples, uh, from everybody in the province between the ages of 12 and 65 under the guise of a free public health care program. You know, so the amount of information and the means of tracking people, who they see, who they talk to, where they travel, how often they pray, is now available to authorities. And those authorities are using that information to say, OK, you, you're not sufficiently loyal. You, you're praying too much. You, you have family members living in Turkey, and that's a problem. And we're going to pick you up and bring you in and talk to you until you say the things we want you to so that we're confident you're not a problem. I'm talking with Sophie Richardson from Human Rights Watch about what's happening in Xinjiang province with as many as a million people in re-education camps in in China's Xinjiang province. One of the things that's so uh, creepy about this is that a lot of people are are kind of reluctant and scared to talk about the situation with the Uyghurs. it's, It's one of the weirdest situations on the planet where where you've got this massive thing going on and it does, just doesn't get attention or focus or uh, people are just too afraid to talk about it. I think people around the world who aren't immediately affected by these kinds of problems, the Chinese government visits on its population and people outside the country, it seems unbelievable, literally. But just to give you an example, I gave a talk last week in Sydney at a very well-known think tank. It was a public talk, and we were talking about Xinjiang. And partway through that talk, somebody actually got up and left because we later learned she was very concerned about being seen at that event. This is in Sydney, right? This is not standing in Urumqi, Xinjiang's capital. You know, people, there are people all over the world now who have to think about what the Chinese government's reaction to their behavior is even if they're not standing in China. You know, they have to be worried about how their family members are treated. They have to worry about being surveilled by Chinese officials around the world. The U.S. and other governments have a lot of work to do in figuring out how to make people, even ones who become naturalized citizens of their countries, feel safe from this kind of surveillance and intimidation. It's a real problem. And it seems like something that's going to grow beyond just the issue of China or anywhere else. I mean, we see Chinese government influence on campuses around the world. We see it in the conduct of businesses around the world. We see it in the conduct of foreign firms operating inside China. We've had a very tough discussion with a company that's based in Massachusetts that has sold DNA sequencers to the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau. We know, and the company knows, that they haven't necessarily violated export control laws, But that's not the same as being able to explain what due diligence mechanisms you have in place to make sure that your business operations aren't in any way worsening human rights violations. You know, and if you think about the scope of even just U.S. companies operating inside China or of Chinese companies now operating inside the U.S., 
you know, there are a lot of people out there who need to answer a lot of questions about whether they are enabling human rights violations. Is China just too big to push back against? Is it just become such too, too thorny of an issue for people? I don't think so. You know, I think when there's strong leadership uh, and, and pushback from governments, from the UN, from individual companies, you see China back down. I mean, there's no better example of that than Beijing blinking in July and finally releasing Liu Xia, the widow of 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo, who died in state custody last summer. But, you know, you see China bend with respect to conduct by companies, for example, or you see it back away from problematic policies when there is enough pressure. What people have to believe is both that that pressure works and that if they don't push back, we wind up seeing Beijing engage in even more abusive behavior. I, you know, I really think that the abuses in Xinjiang, which we and others have been documenting for 30 years, have gotten worse, partly because governments stopped pushing on it. They stopped demanding answers. They stopped saying, you can't treat an entire ethnic minority this way. You know, there were occasional condemnations about cases like, for example, Ilham Toti, uh, which was all right and deserved, but not much attention being paid to these larger problems that have wound up affecting huge numbers of people. Sophie Richardson and Human Rights Watch is China director. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening in Xinjiang province in China, where more than a million people are in re-education centers. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, World Music Fest is coming up next month, and Catalina Maria Johnson will give us a heads up about this free music behemoth that is going to come your way all of September. And she's really excited about this year's lineup, and she'll get us excited about it tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Vivian Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance. And thanks to Shelley Steffens for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been looking, listening to Worldview on WBEZ. a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I'd never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.